I want to start this morning with a question and a show of hands. But before I ask, let me warn you, how you answer this question will definitely tip us off of your age. So if you don't want to keep, if you want to keep your age the best held secret, you can keep your hand at your side or maybe hold it up like this and kind of guide it. So here's the question. How many of you here remember the old Batman TV show? Raise your hand. Oh, wow. Okay. I feel, I feel young again. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you honestly have no clue what I'm talking about. And what a shame because you missed out on such an important piece of American historic culture. So the first episode of that series aired January 12th, 1966. So yeah, that's why it will date you, unless you saw it in reruns. I was in the fifth grade. During that first year, it was the hit show. The show ran for three years. In the first two years, it was on two nights a week. It was on Wednesday night and Thursday night. Now, there's a lot of things about that show that I remember. For example, it was very, you have to admit, it was very corny. It was campy, used a lot of goofy graphics, plastered on the street screens through those hokey fight scenes. Kapow! Sock! Wham! Biff! Oh, you've seen it. You remember. In fact, I was going to put those on the screen. I thought, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. But one thing that stands out in my mind was how the two episodes each week were linked. On Wednesday, the show always ended with a cliffhanger. Batman or Robin or both of them found themselves in some type of a precarious situation and everything looked grim. So grim it could have been the end of the dynamic duo. I mean, for a fifth grader like myself who was watching this show on our very first color TV, it was intense. And if you remember the show, at the end of that Wednesday night episode, the narrator captured the seriousness of the cliffhanger with a list of pressing questions. Will Robin escape? Can Batman find him in time? Is this the ghastly end of our dy dynamic duo? Answers tomorrow night. And then what do they say at the end? Same bat time, same bat channel. Okay, you're, you're there. I know how old you are. So back then, to be honest with you, I'll, I'll just confess here, I was not smarter than a fifth grader. And my teachers might con conclude that I was not smart as a fifth grader. But I was smart enough to know that Batman and Robin would survive their dilemma. I mean, if they didn't, the show would come to a drastic end. So we knew they would survive, we just didn't know how they would survive and get out of their deadly situation. So we tuned into the same Bat Channel each week to see what happened. Okay, so probably right about now you're legitimately asking, what does this have to do with Genesis chapter 45? Well, I'll tell you. At the end of chapter 44 the, uh, and the first part of 45, there is this major cliffhanger in the Joseph narrative. From the beginning of chapter 37 in Genesis, we've observed and studied all the events in Joseph's life. The dreams, the mockings from his brothers, the favoritism shown by Jacob, the jealousy the plotting to kill him, the lies, the imprisonment, all these events for over 20 years that leads up to this moment in the story. And after Judah's impassioned speech to Joseph, pleading with him to let Benjamin return to his father for the sake of Jacob's health and his broken heart, and even giving himself up as a substitute for his baby brother, after all the testing Joseph had done to see if they were still corrupt, we come to this apex in the story that is so emotionally charged, you can almost hear the music in the background as it's building in this, this feverish pitch to this long crescendo. So unable to hide his identity any longer, well, let's just read for ourselves. Uh, knowing, the, knowing the story up to this point, as we all do, I, I think it's very difficult. I don't think it's very difficult to capture the dramatic nature of what we're about to read. So in verse one, after that speech, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it 
and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now let me stop here and ask a question. If this story followed the Wednesday-Thursday format of the Batman TV show, when does the episode end? Does it end at the completion of chapter 44 or when the great reveal occurs? Think about that. Personally, I think it ends at the conclusion of verse 3. When all the brothers are standing there wide-eyed hearing this big announcement, this is a major Wednesday night cliffhanger. So the gap between the cliffhanger and the resolution, although it's very brief, to help us understand the theological and practical implications of this story, I've really broken it down into two sections. The cliffhanger and the resolution. Or if you prefer, the Wednesday night cliffhanger and the Thursday night resolution. So as we study these two sections, what we're going to learn here is that trust in the providence of God gives hope insight, and guidance in the midst of all life's cliffhangers. There's so much in this chapter today. So between these two sections are four theological themes that illustrate this truth, and they hold profound, profound practical implications for all believers throughout biblical history. So let's begin with Wednesday night, the cliffhanger in the Joseph narrative. The first theme in the story, which is contained in that cliffhanger, is this, the reality of fear, uncertainty, and anxiety. When Joseph peels off his mask, so to speak, and reveals his identity, if you were one of his brothers, what would be going through your mind? In Wednesday night terms, this is when the narrator raises the questions at the end of the show. Will Joseph get revenge with his brothers for their devotion, for their devious acts of the past? Will Jacob ever see Benjamin again and die with a broken heart? Will the famine destroy Jacob's family and put an end to the Abrahamic covenant? Stay tuned. Well, they didn't have to stay too long because it all came out. So try to put yourself in the sandals of one of these brothers in that very moment. And I think they were, what they were experiencing is identical to what we feel when we're in one of the many cliffhangers in our lives. Well, first of all, there was fear. In the New American Standard, verse 3, it reads, they were dismayed at his presence. I actually prefer the Legacy Standard's reading when it says they were terrified at his presence. Now, one of the leading Hebrew lexicons that I consulted said this, the word here usually expresses an emotion of one who is confronted with something unexpected, threatening, or disastrous. This phrase, uh, the same phrase is used in, a word is used in Isaiah 13, 8 when describing the day of the Lord. And that phrase is used to express a time that occurs at various points in biblical history. So let me read this, Isaiah 13, 6 through 8. It's quite descriptive when it uses this word. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. And every man's heart will melt. They will be, and here's the word, terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their face is aflame. Now notice that last phrase there. They will look at one another in, with astonishment. In astonishment. That's almost identical to the phrase that was used in chapter 43 when they were serving the meal and Joseph lined them up according to their age. The same word is used there. And, and we noted in that word that astonishment carried the idea of being dumbfounded with an element of fear or being frightened of a bewildering event. So why were they terrified? Well, there are two factors contributing to this terror. First of all, Joseph's loud wailing had to be quite unnerving. I mean, if you're standing there and he's crying that loudly, he sends everybody out of the room. Something's going on. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the weeping in the Old Testament was very common and natural. It was a spontaneous expression of strong emotion noted by the Hebrew people. They don't weep quietly. They weep loudly. It was so loud that those outside the room heard it, and it caused such a stir that news spread and shared with Pharaoh. So from the brother's point of view, 
If the number two man to Pharaoh is wailing that loudly, sending others out of the room, this can't be good. And then secondly, when Joseph reveals his true identity, stunned silence tells us volumes. Now, put this in modern terms. In modern terms, they're probably thinking, we are so done. I mean, they're standing there before him. Zebulun looks at Issachar and says, hey man, it's nice knowing you. We're done. I mean, you're standing before the brother you sold into slavery and who unbeknownst to them until this very moment is now the second most powerful man in Egypt who holds their fate in his hands. Yeah, that would be terrifying. And that explains their stunned silence. So there's fear. Secondly, also wrapped up in this cliffhanger, in this moment of terror, there's also great uncertainty. In that gap between the revelation of his identity and the resolution, the brothers had no idea how Joseph might retaliate. For all they knew, over 20 years of pent-up anger was, was being held back over what they did to him. And so when someone like the brothers are in the middle of a cliffhanger, in the Wednesday part of the story, they don't have the luxury of knowing what will happen in the Thursday resolution. And that uncertainly leads to anxiety. Why? Well, because all of us know when you're in a crisis, when you're living in the midst of a cliffhanger that is defined by fear and uncertainty, anxiety builds when we speculate about what might happen. And so often, don't we usually think the worst? Yeah, I see some heads nodding. Yeah, I know. I've, I've been there too. You just start spiraling down into this negativity about what could, what could, what could happen. And I think that's possible what was going through their minds. In fact, in ancient Egypt, they took crime and punishment seriously. Some of the types of punishment for criminals included a hundred strokes with a wooden cane. And if the crime was worse, five bleeding cuts were added. But not only that, other types of punishment included branding, exile, mutilation, drowning, beheading, and burning alive. And usually it was the Pharaoh that decided what type of punishment was appropriate for the criminal. Now, we don't really know how much the brothers knew about all this culture, but they probably knew something. And they were, uh, and they were aware of how they, they were probably aware of how they treated the guilty. So they're standing there in front of Pharaoh's most trusted assistant. And based on what they did to Joseph, Pharaoh would probably consider them worthy of severe punishment. That might lend, tend to lead to quite a bit of anxiety. Would for me. So at this point in the cliffhanger, they knew nothing about the providence of God regarding his promise or his purpose for Joseph. And without that knowledge, what else could they experience but fear, uncertainty, and anxiety? And I do think that that's the case with us. If we become disconnected from the reassurance of God's sovereign providential control over all things, well, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So now let's shift to the next section into the Thursday night resolution, beginning at verse four. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please, please come closer to me. And they came closer. Now, if they're still in that state of fear, I can only imagine they're like, you know, inching forward ever so slowly because they don't know what's about to happen. Please come closer. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, we begin to answer the question raised in the cliffhanger. In this section, there, the next theme that we want to talk about is the reassurance of providential control. Initially, there's still a cloud of fear amongst the brothers as Joseph belts out his identity. And then asked them to, he asked them to come closer. He invites them to move closer as he does that, and he says, I'm the one you sold into Egypt. So now that confirms who he was. Now there's no question in their mind, well, who else would know that but 
our brother Joseph and maybe the Ishmaelites, but yeah, so what he's telling us is the truth. And then what we have in the next verses, in my opinion, is such a statement of profound theology and insight into the nature and character of our almighty God. Now, I'm a firm believer, as is this church, that biblical theology is supremely important as well as practically relevant in our lives. And these next few verses demonstrate this clearly. For example, one of the false views of God that some people have held through the years is deism. So hang with me here for a second. Deism is essentially the view that although God exists, he's not directly involved in the world affairs of human beings. Now that may seem absurd to you based on what you know from the teaching at a church like this or other churches or books you've read. But let me explain how some people come to this conclusion. The classic analogy used to explain the deistic God is the clockmaker. God is the great, great clockmaker, they say, created the clock, wound it up, stood back, and let it run by itself. He doesn't adjust it, doesn't maintain it, doesn't correct it. He is completely uninvolved. There's no need to pray to this God because he's basically a hands-off, impotent God. So we're on our own to figure things out and to solve our own problems. Well, according to one source I consulted, some of the, this country's founding fathers were deists, including Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, and James Monroe. Other people include names such as Jules Verne, the writer, Mark Twain, Thomas Edison, and even the astronaut Neil Armstrong. Now, it's beyond the scope of this lesson to really examine the details of their specific beliefs but generally, a deist denies the Trinity, the inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Christ, miracles, and any supernatural act of redemption or salvation. If they do attribute any personality to this deistic God, he must be rather cruel. So my two sons and myself bought my wife a really nice German cuckoo clock for Christmas. Beautiful clock. And it's completely mechanical. It has two weights, look like acorns, and you pull them up, and then, of course, the weight keeps the clock going. And there's this little adjustment on the pendulum that you slide up and down to try to make sure that the time is, is, is accurate. I have been tweaking that thing since we got it, just to get it, because I want it to cuckoo at the right time. You know, I don't want it to be two minutes fast or two minutes slow. So I'm adjusting, moving, and all this. So my question for the DS is this. What are we supposed to do when the wound up clock runs out. On our clock, the weights reach the floor, the clock stops and the little bird never makes a sound. That's a pretty fatalistic belief system, system heading for a doomsday result. So how does a person get to this position? Well, basically it comes down to human reason trying to explain the existence of evil and human suffering in the world. Deists are drawn to their conclusions when they're haunted by questions that they cannot answer. For example, they say, if God exists, why does he allow bad things to happen? If God exists, why does he allow the innocent to suffer? If God exists, why, why does he allow evil men to come to power? You know, think of the atrocities committed by Nazi Germany. Over 6 million Jewish people suffered horribly at the hands of a nation manipulated by an evil, tyrannical leader. So the rational conclusion for some was that if God were truly good and involved in his creation, he would have intervened and stopped the suffering. Or if he's good, he must have been powerless since he did nothing to stop the suffering. So left with only human reasoning in the face of unimaginable evil, some people concluded that either there must not be a God and all became an atheist, or if there is a God, he must not care or must not be able to intervene and they became a deist. However, as we'll look in our text today, that is not what the Bible teaches. And we can support that right here in Genesis chapter 45. Just look at the very grammar used in these verses. In Joseph's explanation of the divine plan behind all that happened, he cites God as the subject who is taking action in human affairs. It wasn't Joseph trying to be the, make the best of his situation and become a self-made man. No, the reassurance we have of God's providential control is that he's not a hands-off 
clockmaker, uninterested or uninvolved in the affairs of men. And it's seen right here. First of all, take a look at where he says, God sent me to preserve life. Now notice that word sent. It's used three times in verses eight, five through eight. And what does this tell us about our God? It tells us that he is actively involved in orchestrating events in human history to achieve his purposes. God is the subject, sent is the active verb. Consider Joseph's situation. Without revelation from God about his participation and intervention in his life, what conclusion might he reach when he was in the bottom of the pit, pleading with his brothers not to sell him into slavery? Would he not also wonder why he was thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit against Potiphar's wife? Would he not wonder why after interpreting the cupbearer's dream, he was left in prison for another two years? Without revelation from God regarding his role in the affairs of the people he created, Joseph, like anyone else, might be left to wonder, why does God allow these awful things to happen to me? He must not care or he must not intervene. Well, this chapter informs us that God is involved in human history and he's working out his purpose and his plan for his chosen people. So at this point, they were two years into the famine that threatened the lives of all those affected by it. The famine we know in previous studies was orchestrated by God and was so severe that it threatened the existence of Jacob and his family. Jacob knew the severity of the threat when he sent his sons to Egypt the first time and says, buy some grain for us that we may live and what? Not die. So he knew that. Remember all the way back in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he would make from him a great nation. And from a human standpoint, due to the famine, that, pro- that promise might appear to be in jeopardy. In Exodus 1.5, we're told that when Jacob and his sons moved to Egypt, the total number was 70 people. A growing family, but still relatively small, and so small, this severe famine could easily put them in the endangered species category. The amazing part of that loaded statement is the path of that sending, the path that it took. 20 years in the making, through a lot of hardships, God was always in control. He was never a hands-off God. God's preservation plan involved bringing his chosen people out of that parched, famine-stricken land to a place where they could survive and flourish. If we jump ahead to that text um, in here in in chapter 45, note that Pharaoh, when he heard about Joseph's family reunion, what does he say in verse 17? He says, say to your brothers, do this, Load your beast and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me and I will give them the best of the land so you will eat of the fat of the land. Joseph was sent there to preserve their life and he's using Pharaoh in that process. Do you think Pharaoh did all this on his own simply because he was such a nice guy? There was a fair, fair amount of disdain between the Egyptians and the Hebrew people in chapter 43 The Egyptians left the room when Joseph served his brothers a meal because it says in verse 32, that was loathsome to the Egyptians. So this gesture by Pharaoh was not only possible by the providential hand of God, as a result of this provision by God, we read in Exodus 1-7, during that time that they were there, the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. That was part of that purpose. God sent me here to preserve life. Now, we could say that the immediate purpose of God's providence was to preserve life, but in addition to his plan, it was a more long-term effect. The second point here, the second verb is, God sent me to preserve for you a remnant. Now, before I go forward, I must warn you. In my excitement over this text, if I start speaking loud or fast, it's very likely that I might pronounce this word remnant. And yes, I know the proper pronunciation is remnant, but please forgive me. I'm a hillbilly from Tennessee. My Yankee wife here from Michigan reminds me of this on occasions with certain words, and she's over the last 43 years of marriage, she's had to correct me multiple times. So I'll try to stick with the word remnant. 
The root word for remnant used here carries the idea to be left over. What is left? Survivors, remainders. So in scripture, there are generally three types of remnants. There's a historical remnant made up of survivors of a catastrophe or a natural disaster. There's a faithful remnant distinguished from others by their genuine devotion and faith relationship to God. And then there's also an eschatological remnant, the faithful remnant who go through the cleansing judgments described in Revelation. So Joseph was sent there to preserve a historical remnant whose purpose as God's chosen people were to be covenant keepers, the people through whom God would bring forth a savior. And as we're told in Romans 3, 2, the people through whom were committed the oracles of God, his revelation to man. I like the way one encyclopedia, Bible encyclopedia describes the idea of remnant. And it says this, while the remnant idea is as old as threats to human life and humanity's concerns to survive, the earliest biblical remnant text also place it in the theological framework of salvation history. Biblical thought presents an overarching correlation between the salvation of a remnant and the nucleus of the true people of God. God's saving activity in creating faith and preparing a, a remnant succeeds in defiance of all mortal threats and human fears. So in order for there to be a faithful covenant keeping remnant, there had to be a historical remnant. remnant. And that was part of God's providential plan in sending Joseph to Egypt. Throughout the ages, God has actively been actively involved in affairs of human history to preserve that remnant, to, pr to pronounce and proclaim the message of redemption. Now, this word sent often describes someone who's dispatching a person on a mission. For example, that word is used often when God sent his prophets with a message to various people groups. But now think about this. How did Joseph get to Egypt? He went out one day as a 17-year-old kid to check on his brothers, and the next thing you know, he's being carried off to Egypt in chains as a slave. His brothers conducted the transaction and got paid for it. But what does it say now in verse 8 in our text? It says, God sent me, not you. Now, this is interesting. How does this work? We know Joseph got to Egypt when he was sold into slavery. But here the statement is clear, God sent me. I like the way one writer put it in terms of the brother's perspective. Listen carefully. Their intention was not, for, was not sending for future deliverance. Their intention, the brother's intention, was selling for selfish gain, not sending for salvation. Their selling was driven by lust for 20 seconds of silver. God's sending was driven by love for his chosen people. So who gets the credit for Joseph's relocation to Egypt? Well, of course God does, because that's what it says in the text. But it was the brothers who collected the money and handed, off, handed him off to the Ishmaelites. And what they did was sinful, and their intentions were evil. We know it was regarded as a sinful act on their part. When we read forward in Genesis 50, 20, when Joseph says, you, the brothers, meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, the text does not say God achieved his purpose in spite of the brother's actions, as if his plans were disrupted and he had to go to plan B, in which case the text may have read, God sent, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. It emphatically states, God sent me, not you. Does this mean, therefore, that the brothers' actions were justified and they should be exonerated from any, any wrongdoing? No, they were wrong in what they did. So as one writer puts it, the intersection, get this, the intersection of divine and human willing, our intending and God's intending in one set of sinful, sinful decisions and their practical action. So how do we reconcile this in our minds? this intersection of human willing and divine willing. This writer goes on to say, what we are called to affirm is that human sinful willing is not simply used or managed by God after it has happened. Rather, this very sinful willing is meant or intended by God 
for righteous saving purposes. And he does this in such a way that he's not responsible for the sin involved. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged this in, his, in Daniel 4.37 when he said, Praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Or consider, you might want to write this down, consider the words from Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, where God himself is speaking. He says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So how does this all work? This intersection of human willing and divine willing. I have no idea. <laughs> Nor do I think I or any else, any else ever will. What I do know from scripture is that God is sovereign and his providence makes all things happen according to his purpose. And because he is God, he makes that happen, and I'm humbly grateful for that. I like this statement in their work on theology with John MacArthur and Richard May, who were the editors of the book. The book is uh, Biblical Doctrine. Uh, you can pick up a copy in the church bookstore if you haven't done this. They make this statement. Scripture never assumes that God must explain his actions, but rather asserts that he has the right to be trusted. God is not obligated to explain his actions so as to satisfy human intellect with respect to the problem of evil. God's sovereignty must always be reaffirmed. God's word is absolutely reliable and scripture is clear. God is holy, not unjust. Years ago, I read a book. It was called No God But God. And in response to some of the doctrines that we're talking about here, that are above our comprehension, the author made a statement that stuck with me, and I'd read this 20 years ago. And this statement, it's a reassuring statement that always applies when we're in the middle of a cliffhanger and we don't understand what's going on or how it's all gonna end. We can't see the Thursday resolution. And so when it's all beyond our understanding, remember this, I may not know why, but I do know the God who knows why. And I have sure and sufficient reasons to believe he can be trusted. Let me read that again. I wish I had written that, but I didn't. I may not know why, but I do know the God who knows why. And I have sure and sufficient reasons to believe he can be trusted. So finally from this text, Another example of the reassurance of providential control is this statement. God made me Lord over Pharaoh's household. Again, this is an incredibly loaded statement on many levels. And if we had time to fully explore this, we could take each word and build out a whole section on it uh, to get a fuller understanding about how profound this actually is in terms of God's providence. What I'd like to do is just give you a brief snapshot of some of what's implied in this statement. Take the first part of that, God made. God is a subject, made is the verb. He took action. He is the driver behind all the events that led up to this point. These were not mere circumstances, coincidence, or events that occurred naturally in the unpredictable choices of man. What we have here are the specifics of what God did to achieve his purposes. The next word, me. God made me, talking about Joseph. And looking back over this narrative we've been studying, don't forget that when Joseph enters the story in chapter 37, he's a 17-year-old favored child with little experience and no impressive resume in terms of work skills. But once he gets to, to Egypt as a slave, he's bought by Potiphar and is assigned as his personal servant. Why Joseph? Why this kid? Why place this Hebrew boy in such a responsible position? Well, here's why. Chapter 39, verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. 39.3, The Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. The Lord caused it. 
39.5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Joseph was not a self-made man. He was clearly a God-made man, and God made all these things happen. And then that other part of that statement, Lord over all Pharaoh's household. So after interpreting Pharaoh's dream, it was clear that decisive action had to be taken to prepare for the famine to come. So now picture this with me. You got this Egyptian Pharaoh who was king over all Egypt and some of the Pharaohs, many of the Pharaohs were considered to be a deity. In a tiny paragraph in the MacArthur Study Bible referencing verse eight and nine of this chapter, it refers to the title of father to Pharaoh as what the Egyptians at the time called, and I think I'm saying this right, vizier, V-I-Z-I-E-R. The vizier was the highest official in ancient Egypt to serve Pharaoh during the old, middle, and new kingdoms. Often they belonged to the Pharaoh's family, but in later reigns, they were also chosen based on loyalty and talent, even if they were not a member of the family. The vizier's paramount duty was to supervise the running of the country, much like a prime minister. So from the fifth Egyptian dynasty on, the vizier held responsibility for the administration of the palace and government, including, now listen to this, jurisdiction, scribes, state archives, central granaries, which is very important in this whole narrative, treasury, and here's another one, storage of surplus products and their distribution, which we know Joseph played that role. Now also note in the MacArthur Study Bible, he identifies this Pharaoh is, and I think I'm saying this right, Sinusret III, who reigned in Egypt from 1878 BC to 1839 BC, around the time that Joseph was in Egypt. Now, I couldn't find anything about this guy. I've got three sets of Bible encyclopedias. I've got Old Testament histories. I've got Bible dictionaries. I've got all this stuff. I looked in every single one of them. I couldn't find anything about this guy based on that name. So I turned to Wikipedia. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> well, according to the reliable sources in Wikipedia, and I checked the references on there too, According to those sources, Sinusret III was perhaps the most powerful Egyptian ruler of the 12th dynasty. So this powerful Pharaoh has a disturbing dream, calls up this Hebrew who had been in his prison for quite some time, meets him for the first time, Joseph interprets his dream, and right there on the spot, he appoints him as vizier. No re review of his resume, no references or background checks, no internship or training processes to let him work himself up from the mailroom. Doesn't do any of that. Doesn't check him out. I just went through a, an intense uh, job interview process with a company. I had interviewed with six people. They looked at my resume. I had, they did background checks, all this stuff before they make a decision about whether they want to grant me this job. Joseph interprets a dream and he becomes his vizier. Do you think that's coincidental? Do you think he had this impressive persona about him? God made me Lord over all of Pharaoh's household. Does that sound like a hands-off, uninterested, impotent God? Does that sound like a deist? It does not. It doesn't to me. So, however, in spite of this great revelation to the brothers in which he declares that God has always been in control of the situation, there was still a matter that hung over their heads. Can Joseph ever forgive us for what he did? Well, that's the next theme in the story that I want us to look at. Reconciliation through grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Now let's pick up where we left off in verse nine. So after explaining the divine purpose behind all that's happened up to this point, God sending him, God making him, he goes on to offer other words of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Let's read verse nine. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you for there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you, you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my, bro my brother Benjamin see, 
that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all the splendor in Egypt and all that you've seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin's neck wept on his neck. He kissed all of his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. Now remember, the preface to this explanation of the providence of God was his urging. He said earlier, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. This is the first indication to the brothers that forgiveness has been granted. Then just as we read, uh, there is this conversation, this weeping, this embracing, this kissing. And John Calvin put it this way. He said, when Joseph reflects that their wickedness had been overruled by the wonderful and unwanted goodness of God, forgetting the injury received, he kindly embraces the men whose dishonor God had covered with his grace. In the chapters preceding this great reveal of his identity, Joseph, you know, had been testing his brothers to see if they still harbored jealousy and hatred and evil toward him and Benjamin. And as we noted in the great reveal to him uh, into that, that conversation by Judah, true transformation had occurred paving the way for forgiveness and reconciliation. And for Joseph, his proper understanding of the providence of God gives him the basis to forgive his brothers and achieve reconciliation. His first motivation for reconciliation was compassion. As he blurted out his identity and asked about his father, he still, throughout this story, throughout all he had been through, when his brother showed up in Egypt, Joseph was moved by compassion for his father that he hasn't seen in 20 years. His younger brother, Benjamin, and the brothers that betrayed him, as he increasingly observed their true transformation, that compassion was overwhelming. His grasp of the providential hand of God over all the events in his life enabled him to show mercy and grace and ultimately forgive them for their sinful treatment of him that robbed Joseph of all those years with his father. Once again, this is why trusting in the doctrine of the providence of God is so critical to all believers. I like the way Alan Ross, in his commentary on Genesis, puts this in terms of how this relates to reconciliation. He says this, this theology is the basis of reconciliation. Without it, there would only be bitterness and blame, rancor and revenge. The principle is that whoever is spiritual will perceive the hand of God in the course of events and therefore be able to forgive what others have done. No one who believes, now listen here, no one who believes in the sovereignty of God in the affairs of life can bear a grudge or take revenge. <laughs> That's pretty sobering. Now after this great reveal, after this magnificent explanation of the providence of God in the lives of Joseph and the brothers, he gives them instructions to take back to Jacob. Now, even as they're hugging and kissing and weeping, consider this. Think about it. When they report all the news to Jacob, they're going to have to own up to the fact that for the last 20 years, they've upheld a lie that Joseph was killed by a wild beast and that, yeah, in fact, we did sell him to slavery. That's, that's, yeah, that's what happened. And I can't help but think that that was part of Joseph's, instruct, Joseph's instructions in verse 24. Let's read it, it from that verse. Verse 24, so he sent his brothers away and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. Then they went up from Egypt, came to the land of Canaan to their father, to their father, Jacob. They told him saying, Joseph is still alive. And indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it is enough, my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Can you imagine not thinking your son's been dead for 20 some years? Find out that he's alive. Now you get to go to chance to see at your old age. That's, that's pretty emotional. So his parting words to his brothers prior to their journey back was quite appropriate. One can only imagine the conversation on the journey if they didn't heed this advice. 
Who was going to break the news to dad about what they did? Probably a lot of finger pointing. Yeah, I told you so. Resentment and overall fear. Well, you tell dad, here's about this one. Well, in verse 27, as they explained the whole story and he saw the conclusive evidence that he was alive, that all this was true, we don't see any response resembling anger or resentment toward his sons for years of heartache. In fact, that's what we see in our last theme. The revived spirit of a depressed father. You know, Jacob had many cliffhangers in his life. We've studied about all those. In this Joseph narrative, we've been most focused on his grief over losing the beloved son of his wife, Rachel. Now of late, from his perspective, he's on the cusp of losing Benjamin as well, while facing the severe famine that is affecting his whole family. Now, once convinced of the truth about Joseph, the text says, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. It was enough to hear that Joseph was alive, but also that God had providentially placed him in such a high position to preserve the lives of the people and preserve a remnant. That word translated revive here often refers to physical life. It's used in the list of genealogies in phrases such as all the days that Adam lived, there's that word, were 930. But there are other references where the word refers to a person, and I'll describe it this way, inner disposition being rejuvenated, brightened, or quickened. David used this word in Psalm 138, verse 7, when he said, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Psalm 143, 11 says, For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And the words from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 57 Verse 15 provides comforting assurance to all believers who are in the throes of a cliffhanger. It reads this way. For thus, I love this. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high place and a holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. In order to what? To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You ever felt lowly? You ever felt contrite about some cliffhanger that you're living in? God is in his holy place and there to revive our spirit when we're lowly and contrite. And I'd do us all well to memorize that verse and repeat it often when we're in those cliffhangers. And then Psalm 119, which is probably my favorite Psalm. I do not have it memorized, but it, so much rich information about meditations on the word of God. He says in verse 50, which is so applicable to our subject today, this is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me or that has revived. Verse uh, 154, plead my cause and redeem me, revive me according to your word. His word contains all the revealed truths about his providential control over human history, culminating in our place in eternity where our Lord has promised to prepare a place for us. That is the ultimate assurance and comfort regardless of how intense the cliffhangers in our lives become. Okay, so how do we tie all this together? At the beginning, I stated that the central message of this chapter is trust in the providence of God gives hope, insight, and guidance in the midst of all life's cliffhangers. And the first thing we discussed that occurs when we're in the middle of a cliffhanger was the reality of fear and uncertainty and anxiety. And so often, that is our reality we're in the midst of a cliffhanger, which could be a serious diagnosis a debilitating illness, a crippling injury, a financial crisis with no light at the end of the tunnel, a broken relationship resulting from unfaithfulness, the list goes on and on and on. In all those situations, fear, uncertainty, and anxiety might completely overtake us unless we trust in the providence of God. Trust in the providence of God gives hope because it dispels fear 
knowing God is in control. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? It removes that fear. Secondly, trust in the providence of God gives insight by clearing up uncertainties because we know why it happens. All to the glory of God as he achieves his purpose. Romans 8, 28, we know quite well. All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And then finally, trust in the providence of God provides guidance which removes anxiety because through his word, we know how to live. How do you live in the midst of a, of a, of a cliffhanger? When you have one of those serious situations that are threatening, what did Paul say? Paul had a lot of cliffhangers in his life. Shipwrecked, bitten by serpents, beaten, left for dead. And what does he say in, first, in Philippians 1.21? In all that, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is such an eternal perspective that we should always have, regardless of where we are in the part of the story, whether we're living in Wednesday night or we're in Thursday. The question we have to continue to ask ourselves in any and all situations, in terms of this analogy we started with, am I stuck in a Wednesday state of mind with, uncertain, with an uncertain cliffhanger defined by fear and anxiety, or am I trusting in God's ultimate providential care with a forward look to the resolution of that Thursday state of peace? The same God who providentially provides the ultimate resolution is the same God who's been in control all through the terrifying moments of the cliffhanger. It's not like he shows up at the end. He's there when the times are tough. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, what an amazing text in Scripture. And Lord, we can never begin to capture the full intense emotion that took place that moment when Joseph revealed his true identity to his brothers who had betrayed him so many years before. And Father, what a wonderful text of Scripture. We're so grateful that what you've told us here, you've cleared up for us that you are a God involved in our daily affairs throughout human history. You are an active God who knows what's going on and all things work together for your purposes. Lord, help us to grow in our trust, dispel those fears, those uncertainties, the anxieties that we feel because we're reaching out to you who holds the key to all of life and your purpose that you're accomplishing, that you've shown us in scripture. We thank you, Father, for all this. We pray for those who are here today that are in one of these cliffhanger situations, who are struggling with what's going on, how it's going to end, that fear, that uncertainty, and they speculate in their mind that promotes all sorts of anxiety. Dear God, we pray for your grace, for your knowledge, for your wisdom, for your comfort, the assurance that the God most high is there to revive our souls. We thank you for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.